You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. First John chapter one, um, I would like to tell you that uh, today's sermon is uh, one of those kind of feel good kind of sermons, but it's not. So I'm just going to give you that preempt now. Um, this is going to be like tearing a Band-Aid off slowly this morning. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I would ask that you stick with me uh, to the end because there is great hope. And there is a, a beautiful, beautiful um, part of what we're going to work with this morning, that if you don't hang with me to the end, if you check out too early, yeah, it's going to be kind of a downer. But if you wait till the end, you'll see the beauty of the gospel and the good news. As I've told you before, and as I've shared uh, in other sermons as far as illustration, World War II, uh, specifically the Holocaust and the evil that happened during that period of our history has always been rather intriguing to me. And I think not because I love the horror of it, not at all. It's because it says something about the capacity of the human heart. And now there are lots of events in history that we could look at that show us just how evil humanity can be. But I think uh, the Holocaust in that period of time with the Third Reich and Hitler and the army and Germany and all that they did, um, I think if we if we forget that in our history, if we fail to teach that from our history and other times where humanity absolutely was evil to the core, we could repeat it. Now, the idea that, that what happened back there could ever be repeated really is kind of hard to imagine, but I think we know uh, for what the Bible teaches us <clears throat> that if we don't learn from our past, we're doomed to repeat it. One of the things that's always bothered me about that particular time is that there were both Protestant churches and Catholic churches in Germany. As Hitler rose to power, and as the German machinery would get going, and, and it became very clear early on in the 30s what Hitler's goal was. It was not hidden. It was very well known. And, and especially these Protestant and Catholic churches, they, they knew where it was going. But what really bothers me is that they were complicit and what happened. And there's one particular story that I want to highlight this morning concerning Warsaw, Poland. If, if you've studied any, any of this time period, you know that uh, in September 1st, 1939, the Germans marched into Poland. Poland was 30% Jewish, a large population of Jewish people in Poland. And after um, Hitler and the armies had taken, overtaken Poland through a lot of um, bombs dropped from the air, and then, of course, the armies marching in, that one of the things that Hitler decided to do is to take the Jewish population and force them to move to one particular area. We know this to be the Warsaw Ghetto. And there's a lot of history. You can go on YouTube. You can see videos. You can see pictures of what this looked like when it happened. But in October of 1939, just a few months after the armies marched in, they began to identify Jewish people and require them to wear a Star of David patch on their sleeve. So the first thing they did was begin to identify the Jewish people. The second thing that they began to do is to force all of those Jewish people to live in one particular area of Warsaw. This area was only 1.3 square miles, very, very small portion of the city overall. And, and the, the German Reich forced the Jewish people, 400,000 people, to live in 1.3 square miles. Now, I know that's kind of hard to imagine. But the reality was, is that so many people living in such a small area resulted in starvation, resulted in people, the hygiene of the area, the, the sickness of the area, just to go off the charts. You can look at pictures during this time, and as awful as it is to consider, uh, there were children that were starving to death, dying in the streets. There was nowhere 
to put the bodies. So as you walk through Warsaw, you would see bodies of adults and children laying in the streets covered up with newspapers. The smell was horrible. The food was scarce. There was no medicines. People began to kind of fight within themselves. And this was all the result of, of the German military machine who had decided that Jewish people and other people, people with disabilities, uh, people of, of different ethnicities were less than human. Now, I want you to understand this, that the way these crimes were perpetrated from the very beginning all the way through when we get to the concentration camps was the premise that Jewish people in particular, there were others, but Jewish people were less than human. But what really bothers me is how that Protestant churches, Catholic churches, who would hear the teachings of the Bible in their churches and synagogues and cathedrals, and how they would hear that there's a God who loves humanity, there's a, there's a God who created humanity with intrinsic value, that, that murder is wrong, that slavery is wrong, and yet those churches and those parishioners and those pastors and those priests chose to remain silent. But not only did they remain silent, some of them joined in. There are countless pictures online of Catholic bishops standing with leaders of the military to the Third Reich with their hands up in dedication to Hitler and to his cause. And as time would move on, they would, it would become very clear. In, in Warsaw, eventually the third stage of this was, first stage was to identify the Jewish people. Second stage was to relegate them to one small area and, and literally starve them to death. But for the ones who survived that, they're going to be carried off to Treblinka. Treblinka was a death camp. And they would be put to death. And everybody knew what was going on. There was so much need in the Warsaw Ghetto that the German military didn't want to give all of their time to policing what was going on in the ghetto. So what they did is they hired some police officers. Actually, it was just common everyday people from Hamburg, Germany. Hamburg was only about eight hours away. So what they did is they hired people to come into Warsaw, into this ghetto, and to become the police force to try to keep order and, yes, to carry out the desires of the Third Reich. I had to dig a little bit, but I found some of the documentation of who they recruited for this job. And these people were described as hardworking, everyday, church-going people. And they recruited 500 out of Hamburg, and they brought them in. And, and out of that 500 people, there were only 15 people, only 15 out of 500 that said, I will not do this. I will not go into this ghetto. I will not go in there and do what you're asking me to do. 485 people had no problem with it, signed right up. And not only that, they became the military arm of the Third Reich in that ghetto. And they themselves, average, everyday, hardworking, church-going people, were shooting people in the street point blank. They would walk by the same children that no doubt they heard in their synagogues and their cathedrals and in their churches. They would walk by the very children that they knew that Jesus said was precious. They would walk right by them. How do we get there? You see, that, that's why I, I like looking back at this because it gives me some insight in how in the world could a community, can a, can a country of people get to the place where 11 million are going to be put to death, where people have been determined to be less than animals and so therefore can be exterminated. What is it in the hearts of those people? But here's the thing. It's not just them. The same evil that drove them to that degree is the same evil that can live inside of us. I told you this was going to be a long band-aid being pulled off. Just hang with me. The reason I shared that story is I wanted to kind of shock you a little bit. I wanted to, I wanted to, to get our attention on what John is going to say here. And there's great hope here. But before we get to that hope, we've got to get, well, we've got to go through the hard stuff. 
I know you know this. I know you, you've been in the Word enough that you've, you know this, but I want to just kind of recount this for you. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, we have Abraham, the patriarch of Judaism. Did you know he was a liar? Moses, the great leader of Israel, the one who leads the Israelite people out of Egyptian bondage, do you know he had a temper problem and lost his temper to such a degree that God punished him and would not allow him to enter the promised land? Did you know that Joseph, one of the, the narratives in the Old Testament that we often look at and say, you know, Joseph didn't really have anything bad said about him. Did you know that Joseph in the earlier part of that story was very arrogant, was prideful, and would kind of lord it over his brothers? Well, David, whom the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, consciously committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband put in the front of the war and had him murdered? A man after God's own heart, yet in that man's heart was an evil to such a degree that he would murder another human being? And by the way, in the early stages after that, went on as though nothing had happened, went on as though life was fine until Nathan the prophet came and confronted David. Samuel, a tremendous leader during a key time in Israel's history, a leader for Saul and a leader for David. But yet in Samuel's own household, he had brokenness in his two sons. And I believe that Samuel was so focused on the needs of a nation that he forgot the needs of his own household and his own two children, his own two boys, turned away from the faith. Get over in the New Testament, we have Peter. You know about Peter, right? Who said that he would go and die for Jesus, yet only later to deny that he even knew Jesus. We have James and John who have temper issues. They're described by Jesus as the sons of thunder. That was not a good connotation. They were quick-tempered. As a matter of fact, James and John would call, want Jesus to call down fire and destroy an entire city. Paul? You know about Paul, right? A murderer. A man filled with hate. So what's going on here? What, what is it that, that's tying all these people together and us? The fall. You see, the fall wasn't relegated to something that happened just to Adam and Eve. It has infected the entire human race, and every single human being that is born is born with a heart filled with evil and the desire to disobey. If you, if you don't know that or if you haven't experienced that, then just go volunteer in our preschool. Those of you who served in VBS this week, did we see the fall? Yes, we did. We saw the fall in these kids. They won't do what they want to do. They, they, they don't want to listen. They want to run and go and do all that they want to do. But yet, we're trying to pull them together and teach them something that is very powerful in their life. But yet, that fall is still very prevalent. So if we have this kind of potential in us, then what can we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? That's what John's going to talk to us about today. Look at verse 5. I want to read all the way through this just so we get the whole picture. Look at verse 5, 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Look at that. Faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all, right, un, from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, I pray that your voice would be heard far more than mine. The Holy Spirit who is here, I pray that he would take what we're going to walk through this morning, and Father, I pray that he would just deal with our hearts directly. And Father, I pray that we would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit with obedience, that we would yield to his work, 
that we would surrender to His work. And Father, while His work is hard and sometimes it's challenging, and Father, it deals with our pride and it deals with our arrogance, Father, what He is doing by calling us to the cross is ultimately going to bring healing and peace and joy. So, Father, I pray that we'd be willing to hear the Holy Spirit and respond. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. John starts out with a strong, strong statement of theology. He tells us something about God right in verse 5. And I think what he's saying in verse 5 prepares us for what he's going to say next. Look at verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. Now, when we go back into the gospel of John, who does John say is light back there? He says that Jesus is the light of the world. He records for us in the gospel of John what Jesus himself said. Jesus said that he's the light of the world. Here, John says, and by the way, this is a very unique statement all throughout the New Testament that that John says, I'm going to anchor this thing and I'm going to tell you straightforward who God is and that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, God is completely and utterly trustworthy. There is no deception in God. What God does is always done in righteousness and perfection. You may, you may have the attitude today that, that after you've gone through a hard time in your life, or maybe you're still going through a hard time, maybe you're fighting a disease, maybe you've got some difficulty in your family, maybe, maybe you're overrun with depression and anxiety, and certainly that is absolutely running rampant in our country right now after being shut down for a year. Depression, anxiety is off the charts. Even in our youngest people in middle school, high school, and even younger, maybe you're struggling with that, and maybe in that moment you are beginning to think that God has abandoned you. Maybe you think that because God hasn't fixed the situation or God hasn't, in your eyes, moved or done anything, that that God couldn't possibly love you, that, that God is somehow subversive, that God says one thing. You hear me say every week when you come that this is what God says, that God loves you. You hear me say that, but yet in your experience, in your life, in the journey you're walking right now, you're not, in your eyes, experiencing a whole lot of God's love. So therefore you come to a conclusion that God is not trustworthy. That's exactly the tactic that Satan has been using all down through history. That's exactly what he used in the garden. And he'll take any experience, any circumstance, and he'll try his very best to get you to view God in some way other than light. That he can't be trusted. That's what our world is saying. Why would you want to put your faith in a God who's not real? Why would you want to put your faith in a God who can't even control evil? Why would you want to put your faith in a God who says he loves you, but yet on the other hand, allows you to go through all this hardship? He can't be loving, and he certainly can't be all-powerful. But here, John says that God is light. Listen, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, make no mistake about it, there is no sin or unrighteousness or deception in God whatsoever. So whatever it is, whatever you're going through, whatever questions you've got, make sure your life is anchored in this reality. And the reality is God never changes and he's perfect and pure in everything that he does. Anchor yourself there. There's been times in my life where I've gotten to the place where that's the only thing that I have. Because of circumstances, what I was going through, the only thing that I knew to be absolutely perfectly true is that God loved me, that he does not change, and that I could trust him. You may get down in your life and your walk that that's all you got. If that's all you got, that's what you need. It'll carry you through. Listen to what John says. He says, in him, there is no darkness at all. He's going to lay that groundwork, and he's going to say that God is light. In him, there is no sin, no wrongdoing, no injustice, no deception. Now, I want to take a look at verses 6, 8, and 10. And I've told you before that when you're reading Scripture and you see repetition, we need to highlight that. We need to pay attention to it. Listen to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, I just wish John would just be straightforward with us. It's kind of straightforward, isn't it? Look at verse 8. See if we hear any similarities. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. Do you hear the repetition? John says three times, and he says it multiple times in this letter, if we say, here's the idea. John is saying that we're saying some things to ourselves. As a matter of fact, the person that you talk to more than anyone else is you. Every day, throughout the day, you're having a conversation with yourself. John says that in that conversation you're having with yourself, there's some things that we could be saying to ourselves that John says is an absolute deception. The first one, verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him. Now, last week, Josh did a great job talking about koinonia, fellowship. It's that face-to-face -face relationship with God, right? That, that, that we have a love relationship with God. And when we say we have fellowship with God, what we're saying is we are a follower of Jesus. Because it's only through Jesus that we can have koinonia with God. Relationship, fellowship with God. John says that if we say we have fellowship with God, but we are walking in darkness, he says that we lie. That in this self-talk, this conversation we have with ourselves, if we're trying to say to ourselves that we can walk in darkness while saying that we love God and follow Him, we are lying to ourselves. As a matter of fact, the whole book, this whole letter, has been talking about if you, if you say you love your brother, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're lying to yourself. If you say you love God and you're not following His commandments, you're lying to yourself. John says here, if you say that you have fellowship with Him, but yet you practice a lifestyle of darkness, you're lying and you're not practicing the truth. You can hear the truth. You can be aware of the truth. You can be around a church, you can be around the gospel, you can be around other people who believe, but, but if you are walking in darkness and yet saying you have fellowship with God, you're lying to yourself, you're deceiving yourself. Notice what he says next. Look at verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us kind of switches it up here. He says, okay, you can't be in fellowship with God and be walking in darkness. God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So, so there's no way you can get God to conform to your darkness. There's no way to get God to approve of your walk in darkness. There's no way to get God on your team as you're walking in darkness. And then John says, if we say we have no sin, the English translation of the Greek here is a little bit tricky. What's actually happening here, the best I can tell, is when he says, we, if we have no sin, and then in verse 10 he says, if we say we have not sinned, he's actually talking about two different perspectives. The first one is people who say, I have no propensity to sin. I have no sin nature. I, have, I am a good person. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that when I was sharing the gospel with someone, well, I'd have more than a few dollars in my pocket. It goes something like this, building a relationship with someone and we sit down to talk about the gospel or you know, getting into God's word. And we get to this place of, of universal sinfulness of humanity. And this is what I hear. Wow, man, that, that sounds really rough. I mean, what, even what we're reading in First John, that sounds rough. I mean, you start out talking about the Holocaust. I mean, I'm not that bad. I, I'm not like those people you were talking about at the very beginning who, who acquiesced to the German machinery. I would never be like that. Well, the fact is, we're all born into wickedness. Every single one of us. And while you might be a nice person, and while you might have done some good things, the fact of the matter is, inside of every human being is the potential for incredible evil. And Jesus, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he focused on the heart, and Jesus said that in the heart, we can think some awful things. We may not act on it. We may not act out and manifest that thought, but I can tell you right now, there's some thoughts that can run through my mind and through your mind, and you know this to be true, that is evil to the core. When you're angry, when you're hurt, when someone else mistreats you, just go back and review some of those thoughts that you're thinking. John is saying here, if we deny the fact that we're born as sinful people, you're deceiving yourself. If I've had the, ever had the opportunity to, to counsel with you, maybe you've come to me with a problem and um, some challenges you've got in your life, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you walk through that. 
But the pastor who trained me told me something very uh, profound that I've tried to follow throughout my ministry. He told me to know my boundaries. And what he meant by that is, is as your pastor, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. But there are situations that people get caught up in that are beyond my training. They really need somebody specifically to help them navigate this. And so if you've come with me, to me and you've got some problems, I looked at you and said, you know, I love you. And we're going to get in the Word together. And I'm going to walk with you, but we need somebody else walking with us that has a skill set to kind of unpack this. And I'll make a recommendation to you, but you got to understand this. I've already vetted that recommendation, and here's why. In today's world, there's lots of counselors. There's lots of people who, who, who want to help you overcome an addiction or overcome something else. But, but a lot of folks, a lot of counselors with the training that they got, they were taught and told and believed that there is no fallen humanity. In other words, everybody's born good. You're good and I'm good. And, and the problem is, is a society that's broken, which is, which is interesting to me. They never really tell me why society's broken. They just tell me that, that the education system is broken or, or our social system is broken, and therefore that corrupts us. So the corruption comes from the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells us. Again, if you work in our two-year-old class, you see this. Walk into our two-year-old class, you got 15 kids and three chocolate chip cookies. Let me tell you how that's going to go. For this week, we were giving out ices, giving out the little icy pops because it was hot. I guarantee you, if I had a, a room full of kids coming out of that room after Bible study to get an ice pop, and I ran out, and I only had 10, I only had 10 for a group of 20, you're going to see the fall in those other 10 kids real quick, okay? Where does that come from? Does that come from society, or does it come from within us? The Bible says it comes from within us. And if we believe anything else, we're deceiving ourselves. Those who provide counsel, we have to make sure that we're on the same page because here's the problem. If they misdiagnose the problem, guess what? They're going to give you the wrong antidote. If they tell you that the social issues is the problem, it's not you, you're a good person, then I guarantee you the antidote is not going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The antidote is going to be, here's 10 steps to you being better. Here's 10 steps to fixing our society. Here's 10 steps to fixing our education system. Not denying that it needs work. I'm just telling you that the core problem of community, the core problem of society, the core problem of politics, the core problem of greed is the heart of humanity. We're broken, people. We're broken. We were born broken. And then we choose. We choose to disobey. John says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin nature, you are lying to yourself. And wouldn't it be just like Satan to get you to deceive yourself? Wouldn't it be just like him that if he can get you to deceive yourself long enough that you're going to miss the antidote? Look at verse 10. He says here, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Would anybody ever say, oh, I, I don't sin? Yes. Yes, we would. I had a conversation with someone in this church, it's been several months ago, who had a friend who was part of a charismatic church. And that church taught that you could get to a level of absolute perfection in this life. Now, in the first service, people started laughing when I said that. I thought, you already know, don't you? This church was teaching their people that you could get to such a level of faithfulness that you could be perfect in this life. I would love to talk to that person's spouse and see if that holds water. I'd like to talk to that person's employer and see if that holds water. Perfection. We strive for it. We walk with Jesus. The end goal is glorification where one day we will be perfected and be like Christ. But I can tell you right now, it ain't happening now. And your pastor is living evidence of the fact that, that we missed the mark because I do regularly. But notice what John says here and how important this is. He says, if we say we have not sinned, look at this, we make him a liar. I don't even like saying that, do you? I mean, the, the whole idea of calling God a liar makes me kind of uncomfortable. 
But John says that's an essence of what we're doing. If we're saying we don't have sin, if we, if we say we, we have no sin nature, if we deceive ourselves, you can deceive yourself all you want to, but you're not going to change the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness. That You're not going to change who he is and who he is is perfection. And the reality is you're calling him a liar. Man, that's scary stuff, isn't it? Notice that John says over and over again, we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves, and his word is not in us. Did you catch that? We're lying to ourselves, deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So here's what John's saying. John's saying in the matter of sin, disobedience, evil, missing the mark, that we are really good at telling ourselves that we're okay. That we can become skilled at saying, that addiction is no big deal. That lust is no big deal. That anger is no big deal. We, we'll say, well, everybody's doing it. I mean, everybody's engaging it. I mean, what's the big deal? And we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and we're deceiving ourselves. And when we do, when we, when we get to this place where we're not willing to confess the fact that we might have some things wrong, then we have separated ourselves from the very antidote to fix the problem. Because if we don't see there's a problem, if we don't see there's something going on inside of us, then, then we're never going to see the gospel as what it is, good news. John says, his word is not in us. And we have that word confess. Look at verse 9. If we confess. Confession requires honesty, gut level honesty. Confession is the process by which I agree with God that what I'm doing is wrong. Not telling God that it's okay, not introducing dark, trying to introduce darkness into God. I'm just simply saying, God, you said this is wrong, and I agree with you. That's what confession is. That we agree with God that it's wrong. And if we're deceiving ourselves, we'll never come to that place of confession. And we'll never come to this place of healing. And it makes perfectly good sense to me that Satan would want to work right there. Deception. That your lust and your greed and your addiction, whatever it is, has such control over your life that you're willing to lie to yourself over and over and over again to continue engaging in that act. Confession requires honesty. I found that when we're trying to deal with sin in our life, we usually have two approaches. The first one is we make excuses. We excuse it away. We lessen it. We, we basically say everybody's doing it to make ourselves feel good about it. We lie to ourselves. Or we're so hard on ourselves. We're so angry with ourselves. We're so mean in our self-taught ourselves about what we've done wrong that we can't even begin to imagine that a holy God could ever forgive us. We get to a place where we, we think that we've gone so far into this. We, we've done it, this is the fifth time or the tenth time or the hundredth time that I went back to this thing. And so we just beat ourselves down. We beat ourselves down with our words. We beat ourselves down with our actions. And we just have such a low view of ourselves that there's no possible way that God could ever forgive us. And can I offer to you that both offering excuses and beating ourselves up are both lies and both wrong because it separates us from the antidote. So let's get to the antidote. Let's get to the good news. So if our first response and what we need to do about this darkness in our heart is to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with ourselves and be honest with others, that, that that's what we must do. We, we must call it for what it is. We must agree with God that, that this thing is wrong and beg and, and seek his mercy, seek his forgiveness, and yes, seek his help to not go back and do it again. So if we're to be honest with ourselves and not deceive ourselves, the second thing we got to do is we got to run to Jesus with this. We got to run straight to him. What does that look like? Well, let's go back to verse 7. He says, but if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. A couple of things in this verse I want to draw your attention to. If you look at verse 7, you see that where it says, if we walk 
In the Greek language, that's a, a constant. And what, what it means is, is this consistency there. In other words, if we continue to walk, if we continue to follow Jesus, if we continue to endure, it has this continuous motion to it. That if we continue to walk with Jesus in the light, if we continue to engage in worship, if we continue in the disciplines of prayer, continue in God's word, continue to follow him. Notice what happens. It says that we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship, koinonia, face-to-face, relationship, love. Here's the thing. As we follow Jesus together as a church corporately, guess what the result of that is? Fellowship together, koinonia together. When our relationship with God is where it's right and good and where it needs to be, then our right relationship with others is the manifestation of walking with Jesus. So so how how does unity happen across a group of people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities? It's through Jesus, through our fellowship with him, then turns into right fellowship with each other, that we love one another, we we follow Jesus together, and that, that, that confession together, confession individually, restoring a right relationship to God, then helps us to restore relationships horizontally to those around us. He says here that we have koinonia with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. Look at that cleansing. Again, a continuous action in the Greek. So as we continue to follow Jesus in light, Jesus continues to clean us up. As we continue to take up our cross, as Jesus said in Luke 9, and follow Jesus, there is this cleansing that happens. As we seek Jesus' face, as we sit at his feet in his word, as we talk with him and walk with him, there is this cleansing that goes on that Jesus is cleaning us up. He's giving us power to no longer deceive ourselves, but to live and walk with him. Look at look at this next verse, verse 9. I told you at the beginning of this series that Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 is some of the scariest verses of the entire New Testament where Jesus looks at those who've been doing good works, and he says to them, I don't even know who you are. You're workers of iniquity, and he turns away from them. Well, I would offer to you that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. Listen to the hope here. He says, if we confess our sins, there's that word confess. In other words, if we agree with God that what we're doing is wrong, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Now, pause right there for just a moment. Remember what John said first. John said, there is light in God. God is light. In him, there is perfection. In him, there is no deception. That becomes the groundwork for what he's saying here in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's our action? Our action is to confess. To confess our sins to a holy God who's perfect, who has no darkness in him, no deception. What's God's work in us? Well, he says that he will forgive us and cleanse us. No matter what you've done, no matter what habit you've got in your life, no matter how far you've taken it, no matter how broken your family is or how broken you are, if God is light and there's no deception in him whatsoever, then when we come to him and we confess, which means I agree with you, God, that this is wrong, what does God do? God says, I will forgive you. I will not hold it against you anymore. I will not bring it up. I will cast it as far as the east is from the west. You are forgiven. It is as though it never happened. And I will cleanse cleanse you. In other words, I will prepare you to continue walking with my son. I will I will clean you up and I will give you perspective. I'll give you truth. I'll give you power to overcome this. If you'll trust me, then you can have the victory. You can have joy. You can have peace. You can move on. And it makes no difference where you've been and it makes no difference what you've done. If Paul the apostle can be forgiven of his sins and become a church planter, planting 22 churches, and nothing you've done has taken you too far. Verse 9 is a beautiful verse. But I want to get these last two verses in before we go, because this is where the beauty really comes to bear on our lives. This is where the hope is. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, 
I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John's aim is that the children, these followers of Jesus spread over Asia Minor, would not follow the false teaching of these who have crept in and saying, well, there really is no sin nature. Well, you can live in perfection. That's what they were doing. That's what John is confronting. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But John also knows the reality of what it means to live in a broken world. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Look at that word advocate. It's a beautiful word. It's a legal term. And I got to experience this this week um, on Friday, as a matter of fact. I've been studying this for a while, and then uh, here I am sitting in a courtroom Friday morning. I'm not in trouble. Uh, Before you start running too far with that, let me tell you why I was there. Uh, We had a a gentleman some months ago make some threats towards this church, left it on our voicemail, some very serious threats. And on the counsel of our security team and others, um, we followed through and did what we needed to do there. And of course, warrants were served and all that stuff. And so I've had to go to court. It's my second time over this situation. And I'm sitting there in a courtroom. If you've ever been to court, you know, all these other court cases are being heard on that day. And it's, it's absolute confusion to me. I'm sitting there watching all these. And I, I'm, a, I'm a curious person by nature. So I, I've never been to court other than years, years, years ago on a traffic ticket. So I've never been in a courtroom with all this going on. I'm confused. I have no idea. There's all this stuff going on. There's paperwork and motions and all this stuff going on. The judge is sitting on the bench. And, and I, honestly, goodness, I, you got to have a PhD to even navigate all that stuff. And all these cases are getting called forward. And you've got, you've got the victim and you've got the accused. And remember, the accused is, is innocent until proven guilty. And they're standing before the judge. And the judge is going to make a ruling based off what's before him on that day. They may continue the case. They may go ahead and hear it. Who knows? But it's, they're standing before. But when those people walk up there, you've got the victim on the left and the accused on the right. They're standing side by side. And it may be a battery charge. It may be in a fight. It may be a drug possession. All kinds of things. You've got a lawyer over here who's representing the victim. And you've got a defense lawyer over here who's representing the accused. And their job as those two lawyers is to help these two people navigate a very complicated system. And you know what they're doing? They're advocating for those two people who are standing there in that moment. I had to walk up there. And I'm standing there and I don't know what's going on. And the prosecuting attorney, he's talking to me, and the defense lawyer's talking to the, to the accused and telling me what's all going on, and honest to goodness, it, it's a hectic situation. And I'm so glad that I had someone who's advocating for me and the law, and I'm glad that the accused has someone advocating for them, that this defense attorney is going to advocate for this person who's been accused, and I'm glad they're there. They deserve that. We all deserve that defense. It's built into our Constitution. But here's the thing. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking on that role of advocate for the accused. And here's how it goes. Father, I know that Jeff has broken your commandments yet again. And Father, I know that we've been very clear with him in a written word, of what we expect of him. But here he is. And he's, and he's made that mistake again. He, he made that same mistake just a few weeks ago. He confessed it then. He's confessing it now. And so, Father, here's, here's Jeff, and he's, he's before us. And listen, Father, he's guilty. <laughs> he, he is guilty as he can be. And Father... He's even confessed the fact. He agrees with us that he's wrong. Now, what should happen at that moment? What should happen? What should happen from a just and holy God is I should suffer the punishment of my crime. Listen, I'm guilty. I've confessed. The the law stands against me, accuses me of what I've done. There's no doubt that I'm in the wrong. There's no doubt that I am the one on the wrong side of the commandment this time. Jesus says to the Father, Father, remember, I sacrificed myself for him. And Father, remember, in eternity past, 
I was the one that was supposed to be slaughtered on a cross so that he wouldn't have to suffer that. And he's put his faith in me. He's one of our children. And God, based on what I did on his behalf and the fact that he's confessed it, Father, there is no debt that he owes. Church, let me tell you something. When I stand before a holy God, when I am guilty to the core, when I have done everything wrong, I stand before God and I confess my sin to God. Jesus, my advocate, steps in and says, that young man right there, he's innocent because I took his punishment on myself on the cross. That's what an advocate, Jesus the advocate, that's what he's doing. Thank God for it, because I've got nothing to offer other than confession. Notice what else John says. John says, verse 2, he is the propitiation. See that word for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, what is that word? It's only used a few times. Let me let me illustrate this. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to China. Um, this was in 2011, and in, during that trip, I got to go to the Shaolin Temple. The Shaolin Temple is where Kung Fu began. I got to go there. I got to see the the Buddhist temple where Kung Fu began, and in that temple was a huge statue, about as tall as the ceiling, of Buddha. And what I witnessed there was Chinese people bringing offerings to this Buddha. And they're bringing vegetables, and they're bringing food, and they're bringing flowers, and they're bringing money, and they're, they're bowing, and they're praying, and they're begging maybe for a, a male child. They want, to, they want to have a son. Or maybe they're, they're praying for prosperity to this golden, this bronze statue that stands before them. But when they offer those vegetables and that money, what they're doing is they're offering an, an appeasement to, to their God, who is really no God at all. You see, every other religion on earth says that humanity must offer some kind of sacrifice to God so that God is in good favor with them. So that we offer an appeasement. That's what they were doing on that day. Those people were offering their own propitiation, their own sacrifice of vegetables, money, and otherwise. But only Christianity, only the gospel, says that God himself provided the appeasement. In other words, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament especially, does it say that we have to give things to God so that he'll be happy with us. No, what it says is that God provided for himself a sacrifice. He provided a righteous appeasement for his own justice. Guess who it was? It was Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is dying on that cross, he is the propitiation for our sins. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing you can offer. You've got nothing to offer a holy God. You've got nothing to offer a God who is altogether light and no darkness. Your righteousness is filthy rags. There is nothing you've got, no amount of money, no amount of good works that will ever appease that God. The only thing that could appease him is the death of his perfect son, and he did it in completion and fulfillment on your behalf. So Jesus is both advocate and propitiation. And can I offer to you, that is the greatest hope the world has ever heard. Not only is it hope for you as a lost person, but it's hope for me as a Jesus follower who sometimes gets it wrong. The amazing thing is, is that when we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves, we run everywhere else looking for the antidote. And that's exactly what Satan would have for you. Is you just keep telling yourself it's okay. You just keep telling yourself long enough that you're good enough. That when it's all said and done, when you stand before holy God in your sins, that somehow you'll have something to offer him. And God is going to say, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are because your sacrifice is not enough. The sacrifice that was you decided to ignore. So therefore, God sends no one to hell. We choose it for ourselves, completely with our eyes wide open. Confession is the action that brings about forgiveness, restoration. And it's that confession that engages Jesus as our advocate. It's that confession that, that engages Jesus as our propitiation. The only way that we can walk together in unity as a church body, as Christ followers, the only way we can do that is to walk in light, in fellowship with God, in fellowship with one another. And I want you to make sure you hear this. There is no avenue revealed in the Bible 
by which we find forgiveness through Christ in the absence of confession. Let me, let me rephrase that. There is no avenue in Scripture whatsoever in the Christian faith, in our doctrine, theology, however you want to frame it, there is no place where you find forgiveness without confession. There is no way to, to have Jesus as an advocate if we don't even think we're in the wrong. There, there is no way to experience the propitiation that Jesus provided unless we take ownership of our own, well, brokenness. The, the fact is that the problem on your job, the problem in your marriage, the problem in your parenting may not be somebody else. It might be you. It might be. And until we take ownership of that, be honest with ourselves about that, and confess that, then you'll continue to lie to yourself and you'll continue to miss out on the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, in this moment as we prepare to worship, Father, I pray that this morning that we could focus our attention before we sing the first note this morning that we could deal with the reality that we may be lying to ourselves. There are lost people in this room and online that are lying to themselves. And they're believing the lie. They're deceived. The truth is not in them. They're playing around with this whole idea of Christianity, but they've never crossed from death into life. And they know it. The people around them know it. And they're playing a game. But Father, this is anything but a game. Eternity hangs in the balance. And Father, it begins the journey home, the journey to peace, the journey to forgiveness begins with confession, admitting full on and agreeing with God that you're in the wrong. It's not your spouse, it's not your boss, it's not the world, it's not society, it's not community, it's not a bad break, it's not bad parents, it's not any of that. It's us, it's you. So Father, I pray that we could just be honest with you in these moments. Father, for those who are following you, those who've crossed into life, for those who are disciples, Father, there are some here today that's got their foot caught. And it's a sin that they keep going back to. It's this thing that's been a hold of them for a long time. And they've been lying to themselves. They've been saying this no big deal. Father, I pray that they will be confronted with the truth this morning. That peace and joy, fellowship with you can be restored. For if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Father, that is true because you are true. May we respond accordingly this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 